The Nonprofit Hour, a weekly look at Portland's nonprofits and do-gooders, with interviews, profiles, and documentaries. This is the Nonprofit Hour program here on X-Ray FM. The show is brought to us by the Media Institute for Social Change, a public interest media lab that works to inspire, empower, and engage emerging media producers. I'm Jason Dennington. Portland is a city that, as evidenced by being home to one of the greatest independent bookstores in the country, has a long love of reading. On today's show, we welcome Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts, who are most widely known for presenting the Portland Arts and Lectures series at the Arlene Schnitzer, as well as the annual Wordstock Festival. First up, though, we have some news about an event coming up this week, and on the phone to tell us about it, we're pleased to have Christy Balzer, Executive Director of the Rock and Roll Camp for Girls. Welcome, Christy. Hi, thank you. For our listeners who are not familiar with the Rock and Roll Camp for Girls, can you tell us a bit about the background of the organization? Of course, yeah. Rock and Roll Camp for Girls started 15 years ago, and it started out as a um, PSU capstone project uh, by a woman named Misty McElroy. And she wanted to bring girls together to experience um, rock music in a space that was safe and was girls only. Um, 15 years ago, uh, you know, girls were not a big part of the music scene, particularly the punk music scene. And that was what Missy wanted to create. And she had no idea that what she was doing was going to become such a phenomenon. Um, 15 years later, we're still running strong here in Portland, and there are over 50 camps worldwide. Um, the whole point of the camp is to give girls the experience um, to build self-esteem and to encourage them to use their voices. So during the week of camp, they learn to play an instrument, they form a band with other girls their own age, they learn to write a song with their band, write an original piece of music, and then perform live in front of an audience at the end of the week with their band. I know you do a number of camps during the summer, but do you also have other programs year-round? We have four weeks of camp in the summertime. Um, we also, in the past, have run an after-school program. That program is currently being retooled, and we will be launching again, um, hopefully next fall um, or the following spring, the after-school program, so that we would have year-round programming. Um, we also have a ladies' rock camp, which we do twice a year. It's a weekend camp. Women, adult women come for the weekend. They do all the same things that the girls do during a week of summer camp, but it's condensed into a weekend. And that is a fundraising event to provide tuition assistance and scholarships for the girls who come to summer camp. Speaking of the fundraising, uh, you've joined us today to let our listeners know about an event you have coming at the end of this week. We do. It's our fourth annual Leading Ladies in Music Awards. Um, we're very excited this year to be honoring Jenny Connolly of the Decemberists. And we have a new award we're presenting this year, the Legends Award, which we will be presenting to Fabi Reina of She Shreds Magazine. Can you tell us a little more about the Legends Award? There's a special distinction about that award, right? Yeah, we wanted to honor someone who is um, who's had a direct relationship with camp and who has gone out into the world and is continuing to inspire girls and women in music. Um, Fabi Reina has been a camper. She's volunteered with Rock Camp here in Portland, and she continues to support Rock Camp. And she is also running um, T-Shirts Magazine, which is specifically geared towards women who are guitar and bass players in rock music. Um, so she has taken what she's learned and the experience that she had at Rock and Roll Camp for Girls and created a magazine that is directly impacting women in music. So she's really an embodiment of taking the inspiration as youth in one of the camps and has carried that inspiration into the rest of her life. Absolutely. we That's exactly right. Fabi is... Um, one of those people who we want all of our campers to look up to and, and realize that they can realize their dream and that they have a voice and they can go out into the world and use that voice for positive change. And what will attendees be seeing at the event you're holding this Friday? 
yeah, it's going to be a great event, um, and there still are tickets available. If people are interested in joining us, tickets are available on our website at girlsrockcamp.org. Um, we're going to start the evening with a reception in our courtyard, and, um, of course, we're going to have some great activities. Um, we're going to be pouring some wine and some beer, craft appetizers. Uh, DJ Anjali is going to be spinning for us during the reception, um, we're going to have a wall of mystery swag bags that people can buy, which will have all kinds of great things in them. Um, four of the bags will have guitars, brand new guitars from Rock Camp. And you'll have an opportunity to sponsor some campers from other organizations that support youth in Portland. We're partnering this year with Sista Sista and Bradley Angle and the Cascade Mental Health. Um, to support campers and have some of their girls who participate in their programs be campers next summer. And then we will um, have the awards banquet with a gourmet dinner by Cheryl's on 12th. We'll have a live auction and we'll be presenting our awards. We are hoping that um, Jenny will uh, play a little bit for us during um her award presentation. Maybe she'll uh, bring her accordion along with her. Uh, we're hoping, yeah, we're hoping she will. <laughs> Um, and then we're going to end the night with an after party. We have a surprise uh, band, local band playing. So it's going to be a lot of fun. And to wrap up, can you give us all the details about how to attend the event and find out more? Absolutely. So Leading Ladies and Music Awards happens this Friday, November 4th at 6 p.m. at the First Christian Church on the corner of Columbia and Broadway. And you can get tickets at our website, which is girlsrockcamp.org. Thanks, Christy, for coming on today and telling us all about it. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Heading out, do you have a song you'd like to play and introduce for us? Absolutely. I would love to hear We Rock, which is the Rock and Roll Camp for Girls theme song.
This is Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Hour on X-Ray FM. I am so happy to be joined in the studio with by Andrew Proctor, who's the Executive Director by Portland Arts and Lecture. Literary arts. Uh, literary arts. You know, <laughs> it's, it's funny because I, 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 I plug into your guys' organization so much through uh, the Arts and the Lecture events. series. This is very common for people to be... Uh, there are a lot of reasons for it, but Arts and Lectures, because it has such a high visi- such high visibility, people confuse it for the organization, but... There's a lot else going on, right? And that, let, let, that's a good place to start uh, talking. You guys have—I mean, you guys have a lot going on. You have writers in the school, Oregon Book Tour. You have a radio show, yeah, and the Arts and Lecture. Yep, and a festival. We run the Wordstock Wordstock Book Festival. Yep. Let's get to Wordstock in a little bit. I want to talk about the Arts and Lecture because that's that's yeah certainly what I enjoy. Cool. And it. th- it's an amazing series. It's it's four writers each year. Five. Five writers each Five. year. Yep. Okay. I have the tickets. I should know. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and just to confirm, each one of these comes in and it's an original hour, roughly hour long work or presentation. Yeah. So it's at 50 minutes of original material that people don't read from their books or if they do, they read extremely brief moments from the book, which are designed to be illustrations of what they're talking about rather than, you know, reading like you would on a book tour. Um, and, you know, they actually, they come in, I mean, you see it in the concert hall, but actually the model for arts and lectures now is that those writers um, come and do like a whole day of community engagement when they're in Portland. They visit schools, they meet with local writers, they do a lecture at the concert hall, they're on the radio. I mean, by the time you leave town, you'll have interacted with literally thousands of Portlanders and Oregonians um, of all ages. So, I mean, so it's, a, it's a pretty amazing experience for them as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that like sometimes, sometimes people are enthusiastic about the community stuff, and sometimes they're not. They're busy people, and they want to write their books. And but but more often than not, uh, writers say to us that the high school visit was like the best part of the trip. And 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 talk to me a little bit more about the high school visits because at at the at the Schnitzer where the, where the presentations yeah. happen, there's there's always <laughs> there's there's different cheering sections and right. uh, uh, from the different high schools. But earlier in the day, uh, the authors have gone in and talked to them, and they've talked to them about. It sounds like it's it's not just I'm a writer and here's sort of what I what how it happens. It sounds like those uh, those discussions are a bit more advanced. Well, they, yeah, I mean, it, 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 yes, and so there, are, you know, the, the the high school community can plug in to us in a number of ways. One of the ways is to apply to come to the concert hall and be there for the night of the event. And that is a special night. Many of those students have never been to the concert hall before. Um, And, you know, a lot of what that message is that for us is like, well, you're, you know, this belongs to you, quite literally, from a tax perspective, it actually belongs to you as a citizen. And we want the community to be together intergenerationally. That's really important to us. And so we don't do sequestered student events in the afternoon. In the concert hall, we bring everyone together. That's a real important value proposition. And then when you get in the schools, because we work in the schools year-round um, with artist residencies, with local writers, um, our relationships are very strong with those schools. And so if we want to bring, like we brought Salman Rushdie to Madison High School, you know, we're able to provide books in advance you know, often that work is worked right into the classroom experience so that by the time, you know, Rushdie gets to that that library, he was in the Madison High School library, those kids are really ready to talk to him about either his life or his work. And the questions range, you know, pretty widely between specific things about specific characters in specific books, right? Sometimes 30 years ago, so writers are scratching their head like, oh, did I write that? That's interesting, <laughs> right? Or, or about... Uh, or about their life, too. I think that um, particularly when you're talking about writers of color, like making sure that you're bringing those into schools where people can see themselves in the author is just really crucial. So I remember when Salman was in Madison, a lot of them wanted to talk about um, his young adult books, actually, which he had written for, which were dedicated to his various children. And they talked a lot about their, their his kids. And I mean, it was quite interesting. Like, he was sort of got into family life. Um, which I think sort of humanizes somebody who seems absurdly famous, right? And so suddenly, oh, like Salman's just kind of like a regular guy from India in some ways, right? And obviously he's an extraordinary person, but in some ways he's just like a regular dad, 
who has a complicated life and needs to get breakfast on the table in the morning. Like, I think that that's a valuable part of the humanizing aspects of this so that people can see themselves doing that. And, and, and that attitude and that spirit seems to carry through even to the large presentation. The Snitcher is uh, 2,700 people. I mean, that's, yeah. that's a lot of people. Yet they seem really like intimate gatherings. I mean, they're, they're yeah. really uh, the, the exchange is obviously it's original material, uh, but it's also there's something that's very on guarded often about the authors. And, and obviously you guys have something to do about setting that tone. Well, yeah. So, I mean, I think when we when we when we invite people to come, we just try to be exceedingly clear about what's actually happening here. So, again, writers are busy people. They get a lot of invitations. We just do a lot of work to say, you know, this isn't an academic audience, right? And it's not a bookstore audience. It's some of that these people want to come and they kind of want to know you a little bit. You can decide what that means for yourself as a writer. Um, So, I mean, I, you know, Louise... Erdrich, for example, who I've been emailing with, she's opening night this year. We were emailing back and forth because she was sometimes rather confused. Like, I don't even understand. Like, there are really 2,700 regular people coming to this thing. Like, these are the largest audiences some of these writers have ever spoken to outside of, like, you know, the, you know, uh, commencement speeches or something, right? And so, so, you know, Louise was like, well, I, she said, I said, you know, what do you want to talk about, Louise? I mean, I, you know, I, and she said, well, I actually really want to talk about my bookstore, which for the first time in the years that I've run it is actually cash flow positive. And I'm really proud of that. And so I was like, I think that'd be great. Like, that's a journey that you went on. You, you know, you didn't, you didn't have to do that. You were doing just fine as a writer. You chose to open a bookstore in your community sort of as an act of activism around. Uh, where's she from? She's from, Mini- well, she lives in Minneapolis now. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so she opened a bookstore called Birchbark Books, which is actually named after a, a children's book that she wrote a long time ago. But it was sort of an act of activism, right? She she was like outraged that her very local community in Minneapolis, the area that she lived in, didn't have a bookstore. So that to me seems like a real thing from somebody who just seems unreachable, right? Yeah, and and but I, I want to just back up a little yeah. bit and, and talking about how surprised the authors are that 2,700 people are coming to these events. How unique is literary arts and how unique is the arts and lectures? I mean, it's it's. do you see this happening in other communities? Um, you know, well, there's two separate questions because there's a question around arts and lectures, poor arts and lectures. Uh, we think, and I can't actually substantially 100% prove this, is the largest literary lecture series in the country. We think. Of course, I don't, I've never been to every city, so I don't know. Um, you know, um, Seattle's is, Seattle Arts and Lectures has a pretty big series in Benaroya Hall. Um, but there are... And, and I think what's more important is proportionally to the size of Portland, ours is like gigantic. Um, this isn't Seattle. It's not New York City. Um, but I think it's the largest lecture series in the nation. And it also, it, we because we now have the companion radio show called The Archive Project, you're getting ten to 15,000 additional listeners per week on OPB plus iTunes. So, you know, for us, the mission, right, is to push literature to the as close to the center of civic life as we possibly can. And that means, yes, the people who bother to buy a ticket in the concert hall are among the converted. But what I find tremendously exciting about radio in general is that it it finds people where they are and they didn't necessarily seek you out. And so, um, so the writers come on stage and they're like, they look up and then they look up and then they look up, right? At the three balconies of the concert hall. And it's full. I mean, that's the other thing. We're not... We didn't put you in a concert hall and half fill it. So, I mean, at Anthony Doerr last year, it, there were like people in the aisles, and I mean, it was really intense. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I buy my tickets the first day that they become available because it is becoming competitive to get those twenty seven hundred tickets. And and just real fast, just can you yeah. run through the the twenty sixteen seventeen lineup? And then I, then I w- I do want to talk about the radio show because literary arts is expanding. Wordstock was last year for the yep. first time again a reboot right uh, and then the radio show but the five the five writers coming this year yeah so uh, Louise Erdrich opens the season um, my hero Don DeLillo is coming in November and he will be in conversation with a writer named Noah Hawley um, who is both a film writer and a novelist himself and he n- the reason that's important is Noah is actually uh, taking Don's latest novel and turning into a film called Zero K. So they're already closely collaborating, so I thought that'd be a really cool conversation to hear those guys talk about that collaboration. 
Um, in in January, we have Colin McCann coming, who wrote Let the Great World Spin, probably most notably, and won the National Book Award. Um, Tracy K. Smith, the poet, Pulitzer Prize winning poet, is coming. Um, and then rounding out the season is Siddhartha Mukherjee, who wrote um, The Emperor of All Maladies, which is the biography of cancer, and has just recently written a book called The Gene, which is about um, the advances in sort of the research around genetics and cancer and medicine in general. Um, really important uh, writer, partly because he can make a lot of pretty esoteric science really like accessible and actually quite exciting to the layperson. And I mean that's a, that's a, it's such a grab bag of yeah, authors. Right. Um, how how do you guys who chooses? I mean this this is the the, the fantasy team of of writers <laughs> right. and you guys do you sit down in a room with the board of directors? Do you do this alone? What's the process for the selection? Oh well, I mean, you know, so there's the answer is yes to both of those questions, which is that the our community, well, we, you know, we do a whole bunch of things to sort of figure out where our community is at. And we think about, I think about arts and culture in general, not just the series, but just what we're doing in the world. There's a great metaphor that is useful to me as a tool, which is sort of the respiratory system. In some cases, you're going to push culture out, things that you think people should care about that they might not already. And then in many cases, you want to pull in the concerns of the community and make sure that you're addressing those things. So... We survey our audience and our general community every year to get a sense of the people that they're interested in want to see. We um, do brainstorming sessions with advisory councils and the board of directors and the staff. Um, and we track kind of what is current in the world that's going on right now. We book the season pretty far out. So the, se so the season tends not to be right on the cutting edge of things. That's why Wordstock ended up being a great addition to the sort of suite of programs. That festival books in a much tighter timeline. Um, for example, I booked this season a year ago, a year and a half ago. I would not have known at the time just how significant Colson Whitehead's new novel is, The Underground Railroad, which is now tracking number two, one number one. It's bouncing between those. Um, but he's in the festival because Manda, who books the festival, is booking in a much shorter time frame. So that's a real compliment to the things that we do. Um, and then, you know, you sit and you, I have 10 or 15 writers who are like warhorse writers that we just want to bring. And I send them letters every year and they send me rejection letters every year. Um, but then eventually persistence is a big piece of that. Uh, you know, I have a, we, we actually tweeted out a, 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 a photo of a letter, a scan of a letter from Don DeLillo from 1996 that was like, Dear Miss Mancini, who was running the organization at the time, you know, like, I'm not coming and I'm never coming. <laughs> right but like we just wore them down right and so um you know getting the timing right means inviting people year after year after year after year so i i mean so so we get all these big collection of names whether it's from surveys or brainstorm or whatever and then we just think about the the five slots we think about the the, the series in terms of five slots rather than five writers so you want to have one warhorse writer for sure right somebody who is just has so much cultural saturation that 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 people just just really want to hear from them, and they're not always that available, right? So, what what makes a series feel really special? Well, in this case, you know, Louise and Don like very rarely do public appearances. Um, and then you think about I look also at what is um, what's really selling in paperback, because what especially novels, because um, that's really what book clubs are probably reading right now. Um, and so for an example of that is like when Abraham Verghese's novel came out, Cutting for Stone, in hardcover, it like sank without a trace, right? It got published to like zero, like crickets. But when it came out in paperback, you know, this is a credit to Vintage, who's the paperback publisher, that book suddenly began to accumulate steam and was on the bestsellers for like two and a half years. And that's information to us about who's reading that book. Do you know what I mean? Um I always think about one unusual writer for the series. Like, who would you not expect us to put in the series? So, like, putting in a African-American poet, Tracy K. Smith, who won the Pulitzer, probably isn't the first place you'd go for that series normally, right? So that's a really great chance for us to introduce a writer you may not know about. You know, people, unfortunately, don't read poetry at the same the same rate they read novels and, 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 and nonfiction. Um, I always want one really great nonfiction writer you know, somebody who's uh, doing something really interesting in nonfiction, Siddhartha Mukherjee, is that certainly that person. Um, especially, and also, you know, with medicine, too, I just feel like with OHSU being such a big part of the city's life, um, you know, there's an audience for that, for sure. You know, he is one of the grand poobahs of this of that work. And then, you know, you know, Colm is just, just like an amazing writer and a 
I mean, he's hilarious too. I mean, he's a wonderful speaker. I'm excited to see him. So, so that's kind of how we broadly get there. And it's like, you know, it's sausage making for sure. A lot of rejection uh, goes on. It's, it sounds more like putting together a basketball team. You know <laughs> right, I mean? right. Yeah, everyone's got a position. Yeah, and... everybody's got a different position, a different strength. And you're, because our audience tells us, you know, what they, they want that variety. So when we talk to them about like, hey, what do you want to see? What do you like? What do you don't like? We want to know. Our audience tells us, um, and this is true for the radio show too, that like, what's really exciting about being in the city is that we have this group of people who are really curious and they would like within the sort of certain bandwidth to be surprised a little bit. And they're open to going to things that they maybe don't recognize the writer's name. It's also the strength of having a subscription series, quite frankly. I mean, you know, if we were not subscription, then uh, you wouldn't get the size of the audience for some of the lesser known writers. But because of the subscription model, actually people have come to really trust the brand and will go when they don't know who that who that writer is. It's interesting because there, there's there's a couple other organizations in town that are like that. I, I'm thinking of Whitebird Dance as well, which is yep. same idea is that you trust the brand right. and, and you buy into a subscription. And and you you said, well, I I might recognize one or two of these, but I'm I'm going to go because it's literary arts that's presenting this. Right, and like and and, and I and, and so the product is sort of known for one of a better terms. So like, you know, you mentioned the intimacy. I do think that there's something incredibly intimate like the atmosphere matters and and the format matters in ways that sometimes i think it's easy to write off in our very sincere world of arts and culture so like i think the idea that you know that the lights go down and you're facing someone on a stage who's spotlit like at that point just someone's talking to you even though you're in a room with two thousand people um, we don't do a lot of onstage conversations. We will do them when we when when it's important to do them for the writers. But so I think I think that intimacy really matters, and so that format people want that format, you know. And and it's interesting because I think also people want to experience it together. Um, and I think that's a really fundamental need that we all have as humans is to to do these things together. It's it's about collective experience, um, for sure. Andrew Proctor is the executive director for Literary Arts. Literary Arts presents uh, Portland Arts and Lecture, Writers in the School, Oregon Books Tour, Wordstock, and uh, can I still say new radio show? Sure. I mean, you know, it's still new. To, <laughs> we're still learning how to be a radio show. It's called the Archive Project, and it's on OPB. And um, we started out, you know, um, in our thirtieth anniversary, uh, which was in two thousand and fourteen. 30th anniversary for literary arts. Yeah, and our 30th anniversary, and we had been, but previous to that, once in a while we'd broadcast something as a sort of special broadcast that OPB was interested in. And then OPB was like, well, why don't we do 30 of your best from your archives in 30 weeks in celebration of 30th anniversary? And we were like, that sounds great. We'd love to do that. And so um, within a couple of weeks of running the show, the listenership was so good that we just OPB made the show a permanent fixture on their programming cycle. So it's been a wonderful partnership. And and what's the content of the show? What's the setup of the show? Yeah, so we go back. It's uh, so the original conceit was we went back and we had all these. You know, there was literally at one point a box of tapes at Literary Arts, right? And it was you know everybody from Stegner in the '80s, Rushdie during the Fatwa. I mean, you name the writer. You know, Patchett, Gilbert before they were famous, like incredible people. And this asset was just sitting on the floor of the organization. And so it, we went about digitizing it, reaching out to all the writers to get permission. Um, and we're presenting snapshots of writers in time um, in different contexts. And then also mixing into that what we're doing right now. So all the lectures of next season will make it to the radio pretty fast after they um, are presented at the concert hall. So it's, you know... A, it's it's a literary radio show. It is the it is, it is the writers speaking to you, and in many ways, it's very similar to the concert hall. You know, radio is so intimate, right? And 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 you brought in a clip. So this is uh, yep. Barry Lopez. Barry Lopez and John Krakauer came. We, as you mentioned, sort of relaunched the Feth Book Festival, and so many of the events in the book festival are recorded and then made into uh, the archive project show. OPB is a big partner for our us in that whole endeavor. Uh, and so Barry has been involved with the organization for, well, since the beginning. I mean, since the very beginning, I think. And he's a great friend of the organization. And he has a lot of um, concern around the writer's role in the world, just in general, beyond just making books. And he has a pretty nuanced understanding of that. So, like, he doesn't think of writers necessarily as activists, but he does think of them as having a greater role than just simply outputting new hardcovers. And so 
uh, he agreed to call John Krakauer, who is extremely difficult to get to come and do anything. Um, and through the strength of that friendship, John came out and they, you know, had an hour in the old church, which was one of the events venues for the festival. That, that And they weren't talking about uh, a new book, which is the primary conceit of the festival. They really were talking about what what is the writer's role in the world. Um, and, you know, it was a. Uh, it was a real honor to have that event. It was a big deal to us. And it was it was wonderful, Barry, to like, you know, really extend some social capital and talk John into doing it. Um, well, how, how, about, how about we take a listen, get a yeah. sense of the, uh, how about we get a sense of the flavor Great. of the archive project? People ask me about, you know, these adventure sports and danger sports, and how do you reconcile that with sort of this idea more people have of nature as being contemplative and and you know, restorative as you found it. And I don't see a contradiction there. And I, I don't know how to explain that um, to people who don't get it, but it's sort of, you need to remember that um, you know, John Muir, who was the, f- the founding president of the Sierra Club and everyone's sort of symbol of, of conservation in nature, he was a climber who risked his life solo climbs. He has written beautifully about in the Sierra during a 100 mile an hour gale climbing a, a, a a huge, I think it was a Douglas fir or a sequoia, and and talking about being, you know, you know, just whipped around, just and so it's not. I mean, there's, an, it's not the two aren't mutually exclusive. I mean, uh, so I, I guess being out in in and even Thoreau, who wasn't known as a risk taker, he, he always he struck, you know, he said you never need to travel beyond Concord. Um, you look at his writing, and when he ventured beyond Concord and climbed Mount Katahdin. Uh, it's, it's some of his most powerful writing, and he even talks about that, how seeing nature in this raw, there's something about, you know, putting yourself at the mercy of, of nature, you know, where, where the risks are real, that it, it enforces a certain humility that is valuable, you know, it, it, it gives you a sense of, you know, a higher power, even if, like me, you're not a religious person, so... I don't know if that, that's sort of... Yeah, and it makes me think that uh, I think you or, or me in some uh, instances um, is, is misperceived as somebody who's trying to, you know, engage with a primal world and, and uh, come home and just tell a story about it, when in fact um, I, I know psychologically that I'm glad to have somebody else on point, if you will, when I'm in in really difficult situations and have been in some where um, one, one mistake would have been the last mistake you made. Um, but the, uh, the, the draw for me about the contemplative part of an involvement with a non-human landscape and the engagement itself is uh, just modulated intensity. There, there is a, a way in which, you know, I'm thinking about, for example, I spent about three weeks diving under the ice in Antarctica with benthic ecologists, and it was technically the hardest thing I, th- I think I ever did, trying, trying to get used to how to orient myself in what was a dangerous situation. But it took my breath away to be 80 feet deep in the Ross Sea and seeing a landscape or a seascape that was 100 to 150,000 organisms per square meter. It, it's staggering, especially because when you're above the ice, you know, it doesn't seem to be other than some skuas and snow buntings or whatever, you know, there's, there's, no, there's nothing there. And I love that contrast between intense involvement with something that's so fully alive and brings you so fully to life and then later that period of contemplating it either in C2, in that place, or at the typewriter or the, or the keyboard. I, I, I agree with you. I, can't, I see the two as linked, that contemplative, prayerful um, presence of, of that which we call God all at once, and sometimes it's coming in the middle of the, the craziest kind of fury and big waves and... Um, shifting ice and uh, uh, animals you're too close to and things like that. 
I'm curious about, you know, we, for me, as well as you and most people, when, you know, we have our special places or special landscapes that just calm us down and give us peace. And, you know, when you were younger, uh, a young man, a writer, and you were, would, or even before, even when you were a boy and still living in the San Fernando Valley, and you would go out into nature and, you know, watch animals and, and, uh, and you found peace in that, did you... Did you have any sense of how, you know, that that was, do you, and, or was it some sort of reaction to the trauma you suffered, or was it just something that had nothing to do with that? If you had never been sexually abused, would, would you still have sought nature in that way just as much? I have no idea, and really it isn't something that I would want to explore, because then, what I was afraid of, you know, I had a lot of fears about publishing that piece, Sliver of Sky, um, but like so many other things, when you... You know, one day a sentence came through my head, and that's the first sentence in that, in that essay. And I thought, oh, now this is here. But as I looked at it, I thought, well, this is something you research pretty thoroughly. <laughs> um, so I had something to write about. And then I, the, the, technically the hardest thing about writing that essay is I needed help from Deborah, from my wife, and from my editor, Chris Cox at Harper's, I needed help to establish the right distance from the material. I was either getting too close or backing away too far because I thought it was too close. It was very, it was very difficult. But when I finished that piece, I was done with that piece. And I did not want to become an advocate or become an expert witness in, in somebody else's trial or... Um, an activist and an advocate or something. I wanted to do what I feel I was born to do, which is to tell a story. And if I had that experience as a child and I could write about it in such a way that y you didn't feel the story was being told by a victim and there was no overbearing effort to blame somebody for what happened, then that would help. That would help those who had been in those kinds of situations. But, you know, we talked about this a little bit at breakfast, that God knows why we do what what we do and what what drives us and you know I'm not really interested in understanding why I write I'm interested in writing <laughs> If you're just tuning in this is the nonprofit hour on X-ray FM and we were just listening to an excerpt of a conversation between John Krakauer and Barry Lopez from the Literary Arts Archive project Today's guest is Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts, who brought us that clip from one of their live events. Now we return to his conversation with Phil Bussey. This is the Nonprofit Hour on X-Ray FM. I'm Phil Bussey, and I'm talking today with Executive Director Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. We were just listening to an interview uh, discussion, really, between Barry Lopez and John Krakauer, uh, which happened last year during literary arts wordstock. Yeah. So I want to switch gears. I, again, literary arts does has a lot of presentations and also does a lot of uh, educational outreach to to the high schools with writers in the school. Uh, obviously, the, the arts and lecture series, which is very popular. Uh, yeah. Wordstock. Yeah. And now wordstock had been, and it it went away for several years. Yep. And and just one. Oh, it was only one. It was one. It missed one year. Yeah. Okay. Which was, was when? Yeah. So it was a, originally it was a, it was a standalone, separate nonprofit organization that put on the festival, and it had done so I think for about nine years, um, and then had just, uh, it needed some help, and they'd run into some trouble financially, and um, I think it's called a reboot. It's called a reboot. Yeah. So the board of Wordstock came to us and asked if we would consider making it a program of literary arts. And since we were sort of a long process, um, we essentially acquired the festival uh, with based on a few sort of core principles about how we were going to make it successful again. And those principles are? Well, so we looked... So when we first thought about it, you know, we looked at, okay, well, where are the successful festivals in the country and why are they successful? Can we, like, is there a way to diagnose success here a little bit? So we looked at, like, 
the, the ones that I admire the most, the Maya Book Fair is the Grand Poobah of festivals. 250,000 people go to it. It is like enormous, and it's been around for 40 years. So that And that that's where? That's in, the, that's in Miami. Okay. And so what's remarkable about that is it's sustainable. It's 40 years old or close to that, and it has massive numbers. We looked at the L.A. Times Book Festival, which is also very popular and been around for a long time. And then we looked at one new festival, the Brooklyn Book Festival, which is only about five, six years old, something like that, and but, but very successful. And you could sort of see a couple of key shared characteristics of those. They tend to happen, for want of a better term, in the public square, right? They're in sort of central locations um, in the heart of the cities that they um, present in. They um, and, and they tend to run best on partnerships. So they really engage their communities um, to program the festival together. Um, they always seem to have a venue partner. So uh, they're not renters of convention centers. So the Wordstock previously had been inside the Oregon Convention Center. It's a perfectly fine convention center, of course. Um, I think Portland Monthly describes it as tragically practical, right, as a, as a space. Um, and and so, you know, we go back to this question of, like, atmosphere matters and where... So 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 we decided, we were, based on sort of knowing that, we we decided, okay, let's see if we could move it to downtown Portland. And that's where, you know, Portland Art Museum and particularly Brian Frizo, who's the executive director of the Art Museum, comes into play because, and this is only maybe could happen in Portland, is like I, I pick up the phone and call the director of our art museum and I ask him to give me the art museum for two days and he doesn't hang up on me, right? <laughs> or laugh or like, and and he called me back and, you know, a couple of days later and said, you know, we're in. So that, that, that yes, it creates all the cascading effect to having the festival relaunched because without that found without that yes, it just would have been untenable for us because we just don't think that the convention center was the right place for it. And and so you had events scattered throughout the downtown near near the museum. There's uh, is in uh, the church, one of the churches, uh, and the it, park blocks essentially, right? So you imagine where sort of down from PSU. Where it and then it, it sort of goes all the way past the art museum and then it abuts at the Arlington Club, I think. And and although it was a really rainy day yeah, last was. year, yes, it was. There was something that was fun about having to walk between uh, speakers or venue spots. I mean, I, you know, yes. Well, one thing is we kept it last year pretty contained, so it was like really on the park blocks. So you were never going more than a block or two. Um, I, I kind of would love in our first year not to have pelting rain, but this is also Oregon in November, so we were ready for that. Um, and I think there was a lot of energy around the festival. You know, there were some issues last year for sure. The programming was fantastic, and the, we had some some of the greatest writers in the world, frankly, at that festival. Um, we got a little overwhelmed by attendance, um, which were sort of fixed this year. But that was, but that was a, it was it was good to know that yes, this is something that people actually want in large numbers, right? That because that was an unknown for us is just how many people would would want to come to a festival because it was having declining numbers when it was at the convention center. So we couldn't decide whether is this just something people don't want or is it just not the right thing. Well, and it's it's a lot more for you to manage. I mean, when you're when you're doing the arts and lecture, you have one yeah. person, and there's a real uh, focus spotlight right. on that person. Suddenly, you have dozens of writers who are uh, doing their own thing, who have their own demands, who are out partying at night. Yep, uh, that's that's a lot of uh, that's a big circus to, to <laughs> yeah, manage. That's right. I mean, it, you know, it well, it only man- gets managed partly because one, Amanda, who runs it, is amazing. Amanda Bullock. Two, uh, you know, like two hundred and fifty volunteers. I mean, this is not in, in so many ways. It's it is Literary Arts Presents Wordstocks, but it's also like not. It's like Portland Presents Wordstock in many ways because you have dozens and dozens and dozens of other organizations inside the city, you know, collaborating with us to present the festival. Um, you have hundreds of volunteers, coll- you know, working with us to make sure that, yes, the hungover writer is someone goes to his room and, you know, knocks loud enough to get him up and get him down to the thing. Um, and, you know, it, it does seem kind of miraculous that it works. I mean, I will say, like, you were like, oh, my gosh, like, it really actually happened. Um, it's it's a, it's tremendously invigorating to be in a place where that that level of collaboration is possible. 
And and it really and and you have outreach. Then you you you're partnering. You're working with Livewire. Livewire is a partner. Um, I mean, our our primary partner. So the art museum is our primary venue partner. And then you have OPB is a broadcast partner. So they broadcast lots of the events, and then we broadcast the rest of them. And then you have evening events. So you have the core festival happens between nine and five, and there are, there's like, I, I mean, dozens and dozens of events all day. But then you have like, I mean, looking forward to this year. You have on the Friday night before the festival this huge literary bar crawl that's going to go from the park blocks all the way down to the Pearl. There's something like 40 events in that one alone. And most of those events are being curated by local organizations rather than literary arts itself. Um, And then the next day, Saturday the 5th, you have a whole day of events. And then in the evenings, you also have sort of... um, you have like Livewire doing an event, something called Literary Deathmatch doing an event, which is an amazing, hilarious, ridiculous event, which I encourage everyone to try to get to. Um, you have Backfence PDX as part of it doing evening events. Um, so there's a there's an array of other things happening around it. And I, I mean, the best possible outcome for the festival over time, and you see this in other cities, is that you have the core festival and then other people start programming around it without your without even like talking to you about it like that's not competitive that's what you want you want to have a sense of like a moment in a civic moment for literature that is bigger than any one organization Um, because again if our mission is to push literature to the heart of civic life as best we can then 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 that that is certainly happening and we see the enthusiasm for it yeah and and in a way wordstock is living up now to its its uh inspiration at least name wise of of uh Woodstock, yeah. Uh, in terms of that, that sort of just sprawling and little parties and events springing up all, all around the, it, right? Well, and the idea that like literature is actually fun, Absolutely. right? As opposed to as opposed to like, oh, this is good for you. That's not the message. I mean, we put a beer tent and a wine tent in and music and like art. Like, we really worked hard to make it feel that way. And 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 that's a just so that people don't think it is just uh, the 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 wild west of literature. There is also very uh, traditional presentations. I th- one of my favorite last year was uh, Jesse Eisenberg, who is probably best known for social media and acting, but is a really wonderfully comedic writer. Yeah. And, and uh, a live wire uh, to, to interview. <laughs> and he was interviewed by, by Jonathan Raymond, right. who is a, a filmmaker, but also whose book Half-Life has to be one of my favorite books oh, cool. about Portland. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, and that, that was, it was a lively conversation, but it was we're talking about these drinking events and, and oh yeah yeah but at the same time wordstock really does have that traditional core to it that's that day so yeah for sure i mean i think that you know um well you think about that you know the Krakauer and lopez conversation i mean these are these are some of the world's greatest writers talking to each other about the things that matter most for sure um so yeah, I mean, I, I love that Eisenberg event, and 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 although very funny, they get to some pretty serious things at that event too. So, so for it is definitely, um, you know, and, and I look when I'm looking ahead, you know, we're, I mean, we're lucky enough to be hosting Colson Whitehead. I mean, The Underground Railroad is a fantastic novel, even if it's just punishing, and it gets to the heart of some of the most important issues that the city's facing right now. And he'll be in conversation with, uh, yeah, I think I'm going to pronounce her name. I hope I'm getting this right. Yad Giasi, who uh, wrote a book called Homegoing, a novel, which is about um, the slave trade in Africa. And, and of course, Colson's book is about the slave trade in the United States. So, um, so there's a lot of that, what we think are really serious, important literary events. Um, but we also try not to take ourselves too seriously all day, and I think that, that trying to find that balance is something we're always trying to do. Well, and 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 treating authors like they're like they're people that that like to have fun and <laughs> yeah. that that have emotion and that are interesting. I think that's what's really nice about it is that uh, the, the the writers do get to be on guarded, and this isn't a stuffy event. Right, right. It's a very young event too. I mean, you know, if you imagine um, last year, about eight and a half thousand people came to the festival, which uh, was about triple previous years. Um, a full 10% of those people were below the age of 18. I mean, not just people in their 20s, below the age of 18. So um, so this idea that sometimes gets repeated, this meme about literature and who reads and it's old people, it's like not. It's just decidedly not. Like I have the now lots of evidence to the contrary that, that in fact, uh, people of all ages really care about this stuff. They're reading, they're passionate. I mean, it's tremendously invigorating. 
Andrew, let's take a music break. Do you have a song suggestion for us? Yeah, well, let's play something by Willie Vlauten, who is, uh, you know, uh, the author of Lean on Pete, which is an Oregon Book Award winner, and uh, he's a fantastic musician. So let's hear something from him. Great choice. Ruby and Luke met in the break room of a grocery store. They saved a thousand dollars and left her mother on disability and his mother and her four other kids. They got a ride to Spokane and they rented out a room. They spent every day in bed. See, they were in love. They thought they were free from it. Ruby and Lou took a bus to Portland. They rented out a room downtown hotel but their money started running low Ruby met a kid named Dallas who was living on the streets they'd let him use their room when they weren't around, but Dallas found Lou's 22 and he blew his brains out. And they just saw him laying there. So they took all their things and skipped out. said it might be so for years they just kept heading east okay what can literature do to solve massive geopolitical problems it seems a ridiculous question however one, one important thing to remember is that in the UK, about 40% of the works of literature that are read are in translation. In the United States, it's 3%. And if, and if arts and culture and literature are, are pathways to empathy and to understanding other cultures, it's no surprise that Americans found themselves in 2004 in a kind of geopolitical cul-de-sac in Iraq. Like what do we do like how do we get how do we get in? How do we get out? What is happening? There is no cultural understanding. And if you if you're a culture that's so isolated that you don't read other work and you don't look at other people's films or you don't you, then of course you're not going to understand. Um so so his, our answer, his answer, the answer that I tried to work on was just to graze greater awareness of international literature in the hope that one day Americans would read more of it and ha- therefore have a greater understanding of the world, and maybe one day that would lead to better decision-making around uh, what we're doing in other parts of the globe. And and that, that mission uh, seems to, you seem to have uh, injected that, or it seems to at least uh, coincide with what literary arts wants to do. I mean, I think uh, the choices the Portland reads Everybody books. reads, yeah. Everybody reads. Yeah. You know, and this, this year is uh, Matthew Desmond. He's the author of Evicted, Poverty, yeah. and uh, Profit in an American City, which is, it's about Milwaukee, yeah, uh, Wisconsin, not, yep. not Milwaukee here. Uh, it's about Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, which has some similarities to, yeah. to Portland in terms of being a blue collar background in terms of uh, socialist leanings. Yeah. Uh, and, and so it seems to be very applicable. And again, that idea of using literature as a cultural understanding for 
uh, the civic tensions that right. we experience. Yeah, I think that, you know, I, I, we're in it for art, but we're also, I think that literature is more than that. In fact, literature is tremendously exciting because it can be very literal in some cases. And, and I think sometimes literature, when it's really well done, acts kind of like a Trojan horse for the most important issues of the day, which is that because the, 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 the subject matter is wrapped up in great beauty, people are willing to accept it in a way that when you just give it to them in bullet points, they will not. And so, you know, that, that book, Evicted, you know, I, I hope everybody will read it. I mean, just to say that the Everybody Reads program is a partnership with it's the Multnomah County Library's program, and we are contribution to it is to bring the writer to the city. And I am lucky enough to be allowed to have a say in in who the writer is, but it's certainly the library's program. And, and Bailey Elke, who's the, uh, who's, um, the head librarian of the Multnomah County Library, um, and I sort of have to duke it out about who it's going to be, and but it's their program. But, but I was tremendously excited about that book. Um, it was Bailey's idea, and I and I and I think it's a great, you know, it, from a narrative perspective, it reads like a novel. So this isn't a book about, like, why you should feel bad about the housing crisis. It's a book about, like, here are these real people's lives, right? Who are in these different sort of situations where they're trapped in a system that doesn't work. And I think it has adds a lot of value to the conversation be, um, because it, it really brings to life the tenants in a, in a there, you know, there's a, there's a trailer park, there's tenants in inner city homes and you meet and understand the landlords who, you know, aren't universally evil people and the tenants aren't universally good people. And I think that level of complexity to the conversation is extremely valuable at a time when, you know, Portland just, to me, feels stuck. I don't sense a lot of political leadership on this. You know, it's very frustrating and people feel, uh, uh, feel helpless. And so Matthew Desmond is a Harvard-trained sociologist. He won a MacArthur Genius Grant. Our hope is that maybe he can bring to the city some deeper understanding of the issues and help and contribute towards getting us unstuck. And and since coming here, I mean, it's interesting. You said you came here to you know start to uh, build the life with with your wife and your yeah. son, but you've also obviously built uh, some of the cultural life that is Portland as well, which is a really great uh, uh, addition and contribution to the city. And and since you have arrived, uh, Literary Arts has doubled its budget. Yeah, a little more than that, and which that. is a fantastic achievement. Yeah, in in less than six years. Yeah, where. Where is that coming from? Where is that additional? Is that additional revenue from from additional programming? Is that additional grants? Is that additional just uh, donations that you've been able to to generate through enthusiasm for the organization? All of the above. You know, so the growth isn't in any one specific area in terms of revenue. Um, yeah, we're a little bit more than double, um, and s- some of that revenue has just come from. So I think it was a tremendously you know, it's, there's a, an extraordinary moment happening in Portland. And as you pointed out, there are good things and there are bad things about that, for sure. And um, I think that the organization was at an inflection point and really ready to 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 grow. And I think it had a fantastic reputation. People before us had done really important groundwork for that, to allow that to happen. Um, and then, you know, as an outsider, you, you get this moment where you have the... the the most sort of prescient and clear view of the organization for a hot moment. I'm, I'm not that person anymore. I've been here too long. And so you can see a few things that other people inside just can't see just by virtue of coming from the outside. Um, and we have a, an incredible staff. And so we just got to work. And it was, you know, it was really hard in 2009 when I arrived that this market had crashed. Um, we'd been through a leadership transition. Um, and, uh, you know, the first thing I had to do is furlough staff but quickly after that makes you a popular leader right off the bat right for the (laughs) new guy from new york just come and cut my salary so and i cut my own um at the time and so but then it was quickly clear i think for a lot of us that there was a lot of untapped energy and around the organization and if we could figure out how to how to how to really get into that we we could grow the organization so you know i think that we remained an organization that has gotten better at fundraising i think it's we've we've been uh, more skilled in our presenting so that so that you're getting the most out of those event, events um but we're about 40 percent earned income and about 60 percent contributed income um 
And I think in, in a way that's really rewarding, we began to do more work and better work. And when people see that, uh, they want to support you, you know? At, as as Portland grows and expands and, and more people are coming here, though, uh, what concerns do you have that literary arts can change with that? I, I certainly know, I mean, uh, you're presenting The Moth yeah. uh, in, in December, and that sold out. The Arts and Lectures sold yeah. out. Uh, at what point and or how do you manage uh, an organization that is so much of its charm or part of its charm is the accessibility yeah. it provides? How do you balance that so it doesn't become a San Francisco or New York feeling to it that's, that it is only for the elite? I mean, it's it's uh, it's something we think about and talk about in the office like every day, you know, and I don't I don't have a I don't have a specific answer to that question. But I, you know, all of our tickets start at fifteen dollars and we're committed to keeping it that way. The festival um, in some ways is a gesture in that direction because arts and lectures is sold out pretty much the whole time. And even though it's affordable, it's still really hard to get that ticket. So for us, putting a festival on where, you know, the whole day is $15 and you get five bucks back to spend on books that day through a, in a, with a voucher felt like an important part of the mission because people weren't getting into the concert hall because you, you just couldn't get seats no matter how expensive or cheap they were. Um, so you're always looking for ways to find your audience and make it available to them. So the, again, and the radio show, again, goes to this idea that like, Okay, everybody can't go to the concert hall who maybe wants to, but you can get that content. And maybe it's not quite the same. I recognize it's not, but we're also making it available free. Um, you can subscribe on your phone. I mean, a lot of people I know now are subscribing through iTunes and then plugging into their car for like long drives, and you can go all the way back to the archives. So we're always looking for the ways in which we can um, engage the community. I mean, the other gesture in, to this to this question exactly was, in 2011, we moved into our own storefront space downtown, and just last year we added more space. One of those spaces is a is a sort of little black box theater, essentially. It's about 60 seats, um, and we present, we help the community present the things they want to present in that space. It is an empty, it is literally a very beautiful, but it's an empty box. And here's a chance for us to co-program with like micro organizations, um, things that they really care about. So it's not what we care about. It's sort of what do you care about? And 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 what's really cool about that is we can have an event for with 60 people on any given night, but I can record that event and we might have an audience of 10,000 for it. So that, that ability to scale, you know, both directions is um, sort of a crucial feature, a relatively new feature of the organization. But it's, a, but it's like really hard. I mean, just dealing with, I mean, thankfully we have a long lease in our building, right? So, you know, what's going to happen to commercial real I mean, we moved in, commercial real estate was, they were giving it away, right? 2011 was not a good time for downtown Portland. That is changing rapidly. Um, I'm glad we're in a long lease, um, but we don't own our building. So uh, we'll see what happens in 2022 when our lease is up, but... Andrew Proctor is the executive director for Literary Arts. How about a one-song suggestion to take us out? Oh, well, let's listen to some Emancipator because they very generously donate their music to our radio show, so I'd love for more people to hear them. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for all the contributions to the city. Oh, well, thank you, Phil, for doing this and having me in. Mm-hmm.